Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In the early 20th century, there was a five-foot-two Italian immigrant that changed the financial industry forever. While working for his father-in-law's grocery business, this savvy entrepreneur got a clever idea. He decided to start buying international postage stamps from countries with weaker economies so he could then resell them in countries with stronger economies for a profit. Although it was a little shady, this business strategy at the time was actually legal, and it worked for a time. Not satisfied with the modest profits from his new little venture, this uh, entrepreneurial uh, young man uh, decided in 1920 to begin recruiting investors by promising them a 50% return in interest after 90 days. Of course, uh, after eight months of doing this in 1920, he raked in an estimated $15 million from 40,000 investors. That's a lot of money today, and it's a lot more money in 1920. During his meteoric rise to fame as a financial guru, he accrued a lifestyle that he had always dreamed of a 12-room mansion in upscale Lexington, Massachusetts, servants, a couple of automobiles, including a custom-built limousine, top-of-the-line clothes, and walking canes that were wrapped in gold. What was the name of this financial genius, in case you're wanting to go out and buy his book so that you can earn more money? and give a lot more to the Lord's Church. I know that's what you were thinking. Well, his name was Charles Ponzi. His con was simple. He took money from new investors and used it to pay off debts to old investors. Or another way to describe it would be, he borrowed from Peter to pay Paul. The problem with his plan was that there was actually no investment going on, just the shuffling of money was happening from new investors to old ones. It worked temporarily until the scheme runs out of investors, and then it comes tumbling down like a house of cards. And it did, eventually. The owner of the Wall Street Journal at that time, Clarence Barron, figured out what Ponzi was doing because he started crunching some numbers and going, wait a minute, this doesn't seem quite right. And so Mr. Barron went to the Boston Globe in July of 1920 and exposed the scheme through a front page story. The next month, in August of 1920, federal regulators who were prompted by the Boston Globe story uh, raided Ponzi's office and uncovered his scheme. After serving a short prison sentence, Mr. Ponzi eventually died in 1949. Uh, he lived in Rio de Janeiro his latter years of life, but he died in 1949 after living several years in Rio in poverty, and he was buried in a pauper's grave. 
Ponzi's con was so lucrative and his name became so famous, of course, that similar investment models in the decades that followed were given that name, a Ponzi scheme. Well, there's a Ponzi scheme still spreading today in the Lord's church. It's been around since the first century. It promises immediate returns in exchange for your life, but always leaves investors feeling empty. We're continuing our series in 1 John called Authentic Walk. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 2. And pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder you received when you came in this morning. So you can follow along. I've got some blanks and a structured outline for you. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers can bring you one. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can follow along. Our big idea for today, which I would call the sermon in a sentence or my singular main argument, is this. Real Christ followers reject worldliness by pursuing holiness. Real Christ followers reject worldliness by pursuing holiness. Worldliness is a Ponzi scheme that overpromises with the temporal and underdelivers with the eternal. It cons professing believers into wasting their life. Investing yourself in worldliness is dangerous because Jesus calls his followers to live a life that is radically different than the world calls us to live. A, a life that is distinct and more attractive. This can be seen in Jesus' prayer for all believers in John chapter 17, verse 17, where Jesus said, Sanctify them, Father, in your truth, for your word is truth. The word sanctify that Jesus chose is an intentional choice. Uh, it comes from the Greek word hagiatso, which means to set apart for holy use. It, 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 it's a metaphor for, say, the special china that's only used on Christmas and washed by hand and set apart for special occasions. That's what sanctify, in essence, means in the New Testament. The danger of worldliness wasn't just talked about by Jesus and John. It was also mentioned by James, one of the other big three apostles. You might remember I mentioned John is one of the inner circle guys for Jesus. Peter, James, and John were the three. James chapter 4, verse 4 uh, is where James warns his audience that he was writing to about the danger of worldliness. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so if you would look at your Bibles with me, we're going to look at three verses that are packed like a freight car with meaning here. Verses 15, 16, and 17 in 1 John 2. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me stop right there, and here's the first truth that John tells us. Authentic Christians love Jesus more than the world. Authentic Christians love Jesus more than the world. 
Do not love. You probably have heard before that there are three types of love used in the Greek language, New Testament Greek. There's eros and phileo, and then agape, love. John uses the word agape here in verse 15, which is a, a, it, it basically means an undying, unconditional love. What's also interesting and worth noting is that he uses this verb in a tense called the, what scholars would call the present active imperative. And what that means is, is that it could be literally rendered this way, either stop doing it or do not make a habit of doing it. This verb tense is important to mention because it suggests that it already had become a problem in the first century church. Agape love is the deep, affectionate, fondness, and emotional attachment that God has wired all of us to be capable of showing. And what John is saying here is that agape love is the kind of love that God wants us to give back to him, not to the world. Next he says, do not love the world. Now, if you're like me, when I first read this, I had the question pop up in my mind, well, wait a minute, I thought it says that God loved the world. It seems to contradict what's written in other places in the Bible, that God loves the world. Well, it, like especially when you compare it to John 3.16, probably the most popular verse in the Bible. You probably have seen it at a football game or on a billboard. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. Well, there actually is no contradiction here. And here's why. The word world comes from the Greek cosmos. It, it's used in three different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it referred to the creation, like in Acts 17, verse 24. Sometimes it referred to people, which is what John 3.16 is referring to. When God so loved the world, he's referring to the people of the world. He had a compassionate care seeing their lostness in sin, and that is what motivated him to offer up his son as a sacrifice for them. And in a third way that world cosmos is rendered, is, uh, it, it refers sometimes to a way of thinking or a system of values. We see that here, and it's also used that way in John 12, 31, in Colossians 2, 8. Now, these three verses that we're looking at here today are referring to the way the world thinks and what it values. And so, thus, let me define world for you on your outline. I have this down, and it'll be on the keynote behind me. World, in this context here, is defined as the system of values and goals and thinking it's proliferated by Satan. He spreads it and pushes it. It's fueled by our inherited sin nature. And it's in direct opposition to God. It's the, the world is a system of values, goals, and thinking. Proliferated by Satan. Fueled by our sin nature and in opposition to God. Now, I think there's a typo on your outline. I apologize for that. Um, it should say, in opposition to God. I'll get that changed on the outline that goes up on the website, and it should be correct on the screen behind me. 
The world that John is talking about here is like a computer operating system. Many of you, I'm sure, have computers at home. An operating system like Windows, for example, is a pre-installed software that directs and controls the computer's basic functions. When we repent of our sin, and by faith trust in Christ alone, one of the many goals that the Lord has for his children, for believers, is to rewrite our operating system. The Apostle Paul hinted at this when he wrote in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world. Cosmos, again, the, the way of thinking, the system of values that the world has. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Or another way I would put it uh, is if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then the Lord wants to change your mind, your operating system, from a Windows machine to a Mac. And I'm not saying I'm biased. And if you haven't made the change yet, I would urge you to do so, if you know what I mean. So then what is worldliness? Well, worldliness then is this. It's the clinging to the temporal values, goals, and thinking of the world clinging to them, embracing them, and living like them when they are in direct opposition to what God's Word says and what God's Word values. So worldliness is clinging to the temporal values, goals, and thinking of the world. It's living as though this life is the only life you have, and there's no life beyond the grave. It's thinking that the way the world does relationships and money and spends their time and how they view sex and how they view entertainment and physical appearance, work and material possessions. It's the pursuit of pleasure and satisfaction that defines the life of unbelievers. Worldliness is talking and walking like the world so much that there's no visible difference between a person who claims to have accepted Christ and the person who has rejected Christ. Next, John explains why worldliness is a problem, a serious problem, and something that we all should be on the lookout for. Look at verse 15 again in your text with me. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A more literal rendering of this phrase would be this. The love for the Father is not in him. The apostle is saying with matter-of-fact audacity that having agape love, a deep affection and fondness and emotional attachment to the things of this world, it squeezes out the love we're supposed to have for the Father. And what John is saying is that the longer a professing believer loves the world, the more it calls into question whether they've ever been born again in the first place. So you can see in verse 15, as John is starting out this argument, 
It's about the heart. It's about what we love in our heart. It's about our affections. And nothing speaks louder about what we really love than where we spend our time and our talents and our money and our behavior, what we value. And so here's our first application. God's word calls us to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And so I like to give practical applications so that we can take the word and connect it to life and be practical. What are we supposed to do with this? Here's the first application that comes to mind, and that is make Jesus your first love no matter the cost. This is what he expects from those that call him their savior. To accept Christ, to quote A.W. Tozer, is to form an all-inclusive, all-exclusive, unrivaled attachment to him as your Lord and Savior. It is to daily choose to love him more than anything else in this world because everyone else loves you less than him. The first step to protecting yourself from the Ponzi scheme of worldliness is having an undivided heart. This is a term that David used in Psalm 86. I've put it on your outline. It's on the keynote behind me. You can look it up later, but there's a beautiful prayer that David writes that came to my mind several times as I was preparing this message. David, knowing the own, his own adulterous nature and his own heart, his own propensity to wander and to sin and to leave the Lord, he prays to the Lord, give me an undivided heart, or some translations say a united heart, one that's not split, one that doesn't love the world and love God, because you can't do that. Even Jesus himself said in the Gospels, no one can have two masters because he will love one and hate the other. Thus, at the root of worldliness is a heart that's divided. And it's divided because the person that is worldly, that professes Christ but walks in the world, they want their best life now instead of their best life later in eternity forever. They want to be accepted by the world that rejected Christ. They want to fit in instead of standing out for the Lord. They want to have forgiveness for sin without forsaking sin. And that's why I think John says it's a heart problem. Real Christ followers reject worldliness by pursuing holiness. And the first step the motive, the root issue. They do it because they love Jesus more than anything else. He is their first love, and that fuels them to do so. Look at verse 16 now with me. John then continues, for all, and he's building his argument here, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here's number two on your outline. The second truth that John is telling us is this. The Father hates what the world loves. Notice how John doesn't want us to be confused about where these things come from. He says they are not from the Father, but from the world. Next, he references three manifestations of worldliness. 
that he fears are infecting the church. So I have them on your outline as subpoints A, B, and C. They are common forms of worldliness. The first is idolatry. He calls them desires of the flesh. The flesh is a New Testament term that refers to the selfish nature we are all, all born with. In our selfish sin nature, the flesh is at war with God and what he wants. Galatians chapter 5 talks about that. The NIV renders this uh, turn of phrase in verse 16 as the cravings of sinful man. It was, I think, John Calvin who once famously said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Well, what is an idol and why is that a problem? Well, I thought you'd never asked. So an idol defined as this, and I know I'm setting a world record for definitions and sermons, but I like to get the terms clarified so we're on the same page. An idol is anything that I love more than Jesus that I'm willing to sin for and fight for in order to get it. An idol is anything that I love more than Jesus that I'm willing to sin for or fight for in order to get it. Idols are rarely sinful by themselves. And that's why they're so easy to fall for and why the adversary is so successful often at getting us to worship them instead of the Lord. And that's because instead of most idols, they're instead they're good things that become idols because we love them so much that we sinfully give our affections to them instead of to Jesus. Some examples of good things that can become idols would be food, comfort, control, attention from others, plans, goals, children, grandchildren, friends, spouses, careers, positions, sports, entertainment, one way to diagnose what your idols are is to figure out what is it I get mad about when I don't get it. And chances are, you'll be able to identify what you love more than Jesus. Here's the second threat, or excuse me, manifestation of worldliness that John mentions. Letter B is lust. He calls it the desires of the eyes. Some translations render this the lust of the eyes. This is primarily referring to the area of sexual sin. John is warning us not to give in to the culture when it comes to accepting sexual sin. Now, this is difficult, I have to admit, because we're bombarded with it, aren't we? Every day. It's all over media, on television, the internet, in music, video games. It's everywhere. God's word is clear in saying that sex is a wedding gift he created for husbands and wives to enjoy together. But the world tries to tell us that we need sex all the time, we need it for fulfillment, the world tells us a lie, we have to have it nonstop from everywhere we can get it to be happy. But it's a lie because only Jesus can do that. When creatures love what's been created more than the creator, worldliness has surely set in. And so John warns us in letter A about idolatry, 
turning good things into idols where we worship them. He then mourns about lust. And then next, letter C, is materialism. He calls it the pride of possessions. Uh, NIV renders it pride of life. That's not the best rendering of it. The original language uses the word for boaster. Uh, it's, it's referring to the sinful obsession with accumulating more and more and more and more and more stuff to where our cars and our clothes and our gadgets become our identity and our security and our purpose for living, and they are the things that bring us happiness. Of course, we live in a culture in which it's difficult to resist this temptation without the Lord's help. One reason for this is that the adversary is taking something, as he usually does. He takes good things and then adopts them and crafts them to help execute his evil schemes. He takes something that in itself it's not harmful and it turns it into an aggressive, seductive brainwashing campaign. What I'm speaking of here in this situation, in this context, is advertising. Now let me be clear before I go any further here. There's nothing wrong with a business making their product known so that the employees of that business can earn a living. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing sinful. But here are five secrets about advertising that I learned in my marketing background that the adversary uses to get us to spend more than we have, to want more than we need, so that we can try and find a replacement for the Lord in our hearts. So here's, you can test me on this if you want. I'm going to give you five secrets in advertising the adversary used. And then when you go home today and this week you're watching TV, I want you to run commercials you see through this grid. Then tell me if it works. The first thing they try to do is create the need. They want you to feel when you're watching the commercial, everybody has one of these and you don't? What is wrong with you? You need a car like this. It'll make your life so much better. And there are several other ways that they communicate that or turns of phrase they use. The second is they turn the need into a right. You deserve a break today. Treat yourself or you're entitled to this so that in the 60 or 30 seconds that you're watching that commercial, your brain and, and then your heart slowly goes from, you know, I could maybe use that, to, yeah, I deserve that. They're right. Why am I driving a piece of junk car that's only one year old and not even paid off? I need a new car. Then they make it urgent. It's a limited time offer. You gotta come right now because they don't want you to think or reason with yourself or even look at your checkbook and check its balance or your debt load. It's only while supplies last. Hurry up, make an impulsive decision because the sale ends tomorrow. Then, 
They make it easy to get. You can't afford it? That's okay. We got financing options available. Just call now. Operators are standing by. Go to our website. You can get it in just a few clicks. And then the fifth secret. Oh, this is the good one. This is, what, this is why some people look forward to the commercials at the Super Bowl more than the game. Because sometimes the commercials are more entertaining than the game. Although that's not been the case the last two years. They entertain you in the process. They make you laugh or they make you cry. And why? Because if they make you laugh or they make you cry, it gets your defenses down so you don't know what you're being sold. How many times have you said or heard somebody say, I know I've heard this said before, man, you've seen that one commercial, that's a great commercial. I don't even know what they're selling, but man, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, they're selling you something. It's, it's coming, just wait. So they create the need, they make it a right, they make it urgent, they make it easy to get, and they entertain you in the process. So how do we apply this? Verse 16, where John has given us these three common forms of worldliness. Well, I want to encourage you to identify your own idols and lusts and pride. We all have them, including me. One time I was hearing some teaching on idols at a biblical counseling conference a few years ago and I, I was tired of dealing with my own idols and so I took a sticky note and I wrote down my top five idols and put it inside my Bible so that I could go, I'm going to identify them so I know what they are, I can watch for them, I can be praying about them so that when I get upset, if I'm wondering why am I so upset, I can look at the post-it note, it's right here, if you want to see it. I'll show you after service for a charge, a fee. Uh, but then I can go, oh, it's number three. And number three got me again. I'm loving this more than I am the Lord. That's why I'm so upset. But by spending time in prayer and in the word, you can identify your idols, lusts, and pride that you struggle with. And just knowing them goes a long way in helping you to slay them. Again, I love David's prayer in Psalm 86, verse 11. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. I think it suggests in Psalm 86, he's saying, help me understand your word, Lord, so that I can begin to understand what divides my heart and takes my heart away from you. Real Christ followers reject worldliness by pursuing holiness. Look at verse 17 with me. Now, he says, and the world is passing away along with all its desires. So here's John's final argument as to why worldliness is a waste of time, why it's a Ponzi scheme, why we shouldn't invest ourselves in worldliness. He says, it's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's number three on your outline. What John is saying is that authentic Christians live with an internal perspective. They live with an eternal perspective. John furthers his argument that loving the world is pointless by reminding us of the temporary nature of this life on earth. Striving to gain everything that this world has to offer while we're here is a poor investment of time, says John. Paul talked about this in Colossians 3, verse 2. 
He says, set your mind on your minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. And that's because the scriptures holistically teach that only three things will last forever. God, his word, and the souls of men. And so if your life is not built around those three things, if you're not thinking about those three things, you're probably wasting your life. God, his word, and the souls of men are the only things that will last forever. This is why pastor and author Tony Evans uh, once said, you'll never see a hearse in a funeral procession pulling a U-Haul trailer. That's because you can't take anything with you when you die. And the sooner we realize this, the sooner we will live the short life we have here on earth with an eternal perspective. Now, many of you know that although I share platitudes when I teach, I never like to stay with platitudes. I like to get practical. And so with the Lord's help, I'm going to try and do that in the time that we have left. I want to get very practical and tell a couple stories and share some examples from my own life of how I have wrestled through worldliness and tried to navigate it and avoid it. Um, and so here's, here's the final application for point number three. Learn to ask discerning questions. Learn to ask discerning questions before making a decision on uh, where you're going to spend money or what you're going to wear or uh, things like that. I have found these five questions have helped me over the years in discerning, uh, making better decisions. So here's the first one um, that I have learned to ask, and that is, when I'm, before I'm going to purchase something or make a decision uh, that might be significant, I ask myself, does God's word call this sin, or will it lead to sin? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul clearly condemned sexual immorality that some of the Corinthians were practicing, but it also appears they were doing some other things with their bodies, while not overtly sinful, they were certainly unwise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Or if you have the NIV, I memorized in NIV years ago, uh, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Or the way parents say it to their teenager, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. but I will not be enslaved by anything, says Paul. Or mastered is another way to render it. So for example, the scriptures uh, do not condemn uh, a, a cigar on a special occasion. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was even known for smoking cigars and other fathers of the faith were. But if a believer has to have a smoke every day because they're addicted to nicotine, Paul would say that is sinful because you are enslaved. You are addicted. You are being mastered by that thing. That's 1 Corinthians 6.12. So that's an example of how to discern uh, on, a, on a topic like, say, smoking. Is, is, does God's word condemn it? Well, not explicitly, but it can lead to sin if you're not careful. Here's a second question I ask. Letter B, will it please the Lord? There are certainly a plenty of decisions that we have to make in our lives that aren't explicitly laid out in Scripture. Where, should I buy this house? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? 
Paul urged the Ephesians to do their best in Ephesians 5.10 to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And I would add, what's pleasing to the Lord isn't often pleasing to you. So be careful with the, I prayed about it and I had peace about it. Really. Be careful with that. Several years ago, uh, here's a story I'm embarrassed to tell, but because the Lord's been helping me get over my insecurities, I'll tell this story. My family's going to hear this too, and I'm going to hear about this story when I go home today. So I'm really going out on a limb here. Um, they're going to, I'm going to be hearing about this all week. Several years ago, I purchased a graphic T-shirt at a popular clothing chain that I thought fit me well, thought might impress my wife, thought it would look good with jeans in the summer, and had, uh, it had sort of a distressed, rustic look to it. Um, this is when I was in my 30s, and so I you know, had a much better physique than I do now. It even looked similar to uh, some t-shirts I had seen my favorite country band at the time wear in concert, and so I thought, oh, cool, and it's on sale, sweet. I bet that country band didn't pay this little for it. So I got the t-shirt, uh, washed it. Uh, it had some kind of graphic on it, and I wore it to the church office later that week, and I got several compliments on it, actually. And I never get compliments on what I wear. Rarely do I. I got two this morning, but I didn't expect it. It's really rare. It really is. But when I got home, after wearing the t-shirt with my cool jeans and flip-flops in the summer to the church office, having received several compliments for it, my wife points out to me that night, she says, um, do you know that there's an image of a skull in, kind of embedded in the graphic? Do you, do you know that? There's a skull. Can you see it? I was like, no. Are you serious? No way. You know, it's like I took it off and I'm looking at it, hold up. It was like one of those, uh, you remember like 20, 25 years ago, they had those hologram things that were really popular that, that if you looked at it just the right way and just the folks, your eyes, there was some 3D image. I hated those things because I was one of those folks that could never see it. Yet my wife was like, oh yeah, it's right there. Can you see it? It's like coming off. Can you see it? No, I don't see it. It's just a pattern. It's, I can't get it. Well, that's kind of what this was like. And so she's, I'm holding it up and looking at it. And she's like, yeah, it's right there. See, there's the eye sockets and there's the, yeah, there's a skull there. And I finally saw it and went, oh, I can't be wearing a black t-shirt with a skull on it. You know, walking around being a minister to the gospel. That's not a good idea. <laughs> but man, I really like the look of that shirt. <laughs> and it was on sale too. You know how hard it was for me to find this thing? And so after 60 seconds of deliberation, I realized that that would not be pleasing to the Lord to be walking around wearing something that the world would wear that represents certain things. It just wouldn't please the Lord. No matter how cool it, I thought it looked, it made me look like my favorite country band, like I played drums for them or something, so. So will it please the Lord? Here's C. Another question. Will this be a stumbling block for other believers? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that our freedom in Christ 
or preferences should not become rights that we demand that somehow become a stumbling block to others. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. So, for example, a young lady wearing a loose-fitting, somewhat revealing top in the summertime because it's hot is not inherently sinful, but it can be if it's attempting to bring attention to her body or if it makes it easier for men to have lustful thoughts to her. So I think 1 Corinthians 8 would say, hey, hey, you need to think about what you're doing first and how it affects others. Don't just go, well, it's a great outfit. It looks good and similar to what I had to do with the T-shirt. Next, letter D. Will this hurt my witness or the church? Paul urged the Colossians to be mindful of their witness when he wrote in Colossians 4, verse 5, walk in the wisdom, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. In other words, Paul was saying, you believers in Jesus Christ that are in the church, you're inside the family of faith. You need to be mindful, though, of those outside and how they see things. You can't just do whatever you want. Make the best use of the time. When I was fresh out of college, not even in full-time ministry yet, I worked in the marketplace for a couple of years, and one job I had required me to commute 30 minutes each way from my home to the office in the morning, 30 minutes, and then 30 minutes back in the evenings when the workday was done. I had a coworker who had won the state beauty pageant that had the same commute. And so some of my fellow staff members were saying, hey, Carrie, you and you and Jill, you guys should commute together to save gas. I mean, golly, imagine the mileage and depreciation on your cars and everything like that. I mean, don't you live like two blocks from each other down south? So they kept that pressure on for a couple of weeks, and although I was married and not attractive to Jill, I was more attracted to my wife, uh, and Jill was in a committed relationship herself, I eventually told my co-workers I, I can't commute with her. And I won't. Do the scriptures forbid me from driving to work with a co-worker to save gas money? I mean, some could make the argument that, you know, it's good stewardship. Imagine, you could give more to the Lord's church if you weren't spending all that. You know, you could see how the sin nature can rationalize things. But I knew it would hurt my witness. I knew me being seen in a car by myself Every day, every other week, 30 minutes north, 30 minutes coming back south, with a woman who's not my wife that had won the Miss Iowa pageant would not be good. That would open me up to accusations and questions about my marriage and my witness for Christ. Here's letter E, the final one. Will this hurt my relationship with or diminish my love for the Lord? So when you're wrestling with, should I do this, should I not? Should I buy this or should I not? Should I go here or should I not? Another good question to ask is, will it hurt my relationship with the Lord? Because that is supposed to be the most important relationship in your life, if you know Jesus. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for some good things that they had done for him. But then he says, but you have abandoned your first love. What I've always found fascinating about Jesus' assessment of the church in Revelation 2 
is how it is possible to be busy doing good things, and he commends them for them in Revelation 2. But do good things and abandon our first love. So, is saying yes to lots of schedule commitments sinful? No, not overtly. However, if you're so busy doing good things that you don't have time to serve in the church, you don't have time to be in a small group, you don't have time to worship the Lord corporately, consistently, then that definitely will hurt your relationship with the Lord. And it will eventually, over time, diminish your love for him. So will this hurt my relationship or diminish my love for the Lord? Worldliness is a Ponzi scheme that overpromises with the temporal and underdelivers with the eternal. It cons professing believers into wasting their life. I want to urge you, as real Christ followers, to reject worldliness and pursue holiness. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we realize this morning that what the word asks us to do is difficult. First of all, because John is telling us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we are to live differently. Yet, it is ingrained in our, in our hearts and probably even in our sin nature to want to fit in, to want to belong, to want to, to, to be a part of where we live. Lord, would you, by your grace and by your spirit, please help us to have the courage to stand out, to be set apart, to be different. Secondly, Lord, it's hard because we are bombarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year with the messages from the world, and yet the time that we have in your word, if it be maybe 30 minutes a day, it just seems like it's still not enough to detox and rewrite our operating system. And so, Lord, please would you help us by your grace and by your spirit to see the world the way you see it. Please, Lord, would you give us, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, give us the mind of Christ where we think like he thinks and we see what he sees and hear what he hears. And Lord, for those that are here today that maybe have felt conviction, perhaps your spirit has identified an area of their life that is worldly, would you give them wisdom, Lord, on what to change and how? Would you give them grace and the courage to make the change? Father, would you help us collectively as a church to have a witness in the community that is so attractive that unbelievers would say, what is it about you Vanguard people? I remember I was so grateful, Lord, when I was in college and I was lost, when I saw some Christian athletes who were different I was curious what made them different. They talked different, walked different, acted different. And 
And I thank you, Lord, for those athletes because they had the courage to be different from the thousands of other athletes that were on campus. I thank you, Lord, you allowed me to find out they were different because they loved Jesus Christ. And that attracted me to you. Father, we love you and we thank you for John and how you've used him to proclaim truth to us. Thank you for John's sacrifice for the gospel. Would you help us this week to live lives worthy of John's sacrifice and more importantly, Jesus' sacrifice? Would you help us, Lord, this week to live lives that we're worth dying for? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.